This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm Ivor Royston, uh, one of the co-chairs for this event, and along with my other co-chairs, Mary Walshock and Michael Kalichman, I want to welcome you to the third program in our monthly speaker series with the theme uh, being the advances uh, that we're making in cancer therapy. This afternoon, we're featuring featuring one of the preeminent physician scientists and biotech entrepreneurs of our time, uh, my friend and colleague, Dr. Patrick Sunshong from Los Angeles. Uh, Maybe most people don't know this, but my relationship with Patrick goes back to 1992 when, as a transplant surgeon at UCLA, he developed technology to do encapsulated pancreatic islet cell transplants to treat diabetes. Uh, That's in the early 90s. And I was part of a group... Um, of investors that backed his first biotech company in Irvine, California, um, to develop these encapsulated islet cells for transplantation. Uh, Since then, Patrick has gone on to amass great success in the biopharmaceutical arena, and uh, and we're very pleased uh, that he's here with us tonight. So so now I am uh, pleased to introduce to you my co-chair, Michael Kalichman. So, uh, good afternoon. I'm Mike Kalichman. As you just heard, I'm the director of the Center for Ethics in Science and Technology, also a professor at UC San Diego. The Ethics Center is celebrating its 10th anniversary this year. It's, de- it's dedicated to creating community conversations and dialogue about the ethical challenges that arise from new developments, new cutting-edge science, implementations of new technologies. After its first few years, the Center has settled, settled on a format consisting of monthly programs like this one, in which the public could hear about exciting new developments, and the scientists and members of the community could together identify challenges that might impede scientific development and propose possible solutions. This is an unusual format. Rather than simply lecturing to the public, it's to involve the public in the conversation. Beginning two years ago, we modified our approach such that the programs would be tied each year to a single book, In 2011-2012, it was Rebecca Skloot's Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. 2012-2013, it was Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. This evening is the third in a series of seven programs this year, inspired by Siddhartha Mukherjee's book, Emperor of All Maladies. As director of the Ethics Center, and after consulting with our partners in these conversations almost exactly a year ago today, I confirmed Mukherjee's book would be our focus for 2013-2014. We made that decision based on the content and readability of the book. It was truly outstanding and deserving of the Pulitzer Prize, but also in the recognition that cancer touches nearly everyone. The prevalence is so great. Just nine days after choosing that book, we had an ironic reminder of the prevalence of cancer. I had a routine exam that resulted in a diagnosis of stage 3 rectal cancer, which is why I missed the first two programs in this series. I point this out not only as a reminder of the pervasiveness of cancer, but because of how it indirectly shaped this year's programming. Realizing that I might be out of the picture during during my treatment, I turned to Mary Walshock at UCSD to get her advice on finding someone to take the lead if I was unavailable. Within a few days, we came up with a plan that Mary and her colleague Ivor Royston and I would be co-chairs for the program. The result has been far beyond any expectations those of us with the center had for this year. The stellar lineup of speakers, and particularly tonight's speaker, were direct results of Ivor's connections. 
The enthusiasm and experience of both Ivor and Mary have resulted in the strongest series of programs we have had over the past decade. For their help, we can all be thankful. Before turning to tonight's program, um, in just a moment, I need to conclude by underlining the extent to which these programs are characterized by an unusually collaborative approach across institutions and sectors in the San Diego community. The Emperor of All Maladies would not have been possible without support from SDSU, University of San Diego, UC San Diego, Grossmont College, Point Loma Nazarene University, Sanford Burnham Medical Research Institute, Sharp Healthcare, the Ruben H. Fleet Science Center, the Legler Benbow Foundation, and the Helen Edison Foundation, as well as varying degrees of participation of other institutions and organizations, truly underlining how collaborative the San Diego community can be. I'm now pleased to introduce Rizal Kurzwak, who will be the moderator for this evening's discussion. Rizal, Senior Deputy Center Director for Clinical Science and Murray Professor of Medicine with the Moore's Cancer Center, was our featured speaker in the second program in December. Because of her particular interest in using molecular profiling to match tumors of patients with personalized approaches to cancer treatment, we thought she would be particularly appropriate as moderator. I'll join you at the end uh, to thank Roselle and our speaker. Um, well, it's an honor and a privilege tonight uh, to be here and to introduce Dr. Patrick Soon-Shiong. Um, as our speaker, uh, Dr. Uh, Soon Chung came to LA uh, from South Africa 31 years ago. He has a medical degree and was originally known as an expert transplant surgeon. He is now known as a singular visionary. Um, he, for example, invented the drug Abraxane, an FDA-approved drug that is very effective in certain cancers, such as breast cancers, as well as pancreatic and lung cancer. He is also one of the most successful entrepreneurs on the planet, and he has a vision for transforming medicine with the use of technology and uh, genomics. He is the CEO of several organizations, including a corporation, Nantox, that plans to merge uh, supercomputer technology, advanced networks, and uh, genomics to change the way we live. Um, we are at the threshold of a revolution in cancer care. Dr. Patrick Soon-Shiong is one of the people that will lead us across that threshold. In his talk tonight, he will explain his vision and how he's making that a reality. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. And Ivor um, invited me in such an honor to be here. And what a wonderful turnout. And I see some old friends uh, that I haven't seen for a long time. So um, the way I'm going to try and do this is really, uh, it's something very technical, but also very pragmatic. And I need to uh, address this in a way that um, I can explain the issue and then I think we're going to have a question and answer session. So I'm going to try and take this in a way that will try and address what I see as an amazing opportunity for us in our lifetimes today. So, um, and what I'm going to try and talk about is what I believe is this cancer care uh, in need for transformation. In fact, the whole healthcare system is in need for transformation, but subject matter is not something I can get into now in which I believe that we need to create what we call this national information highway of connected health. 
Um, that's a subject I, I discussed uh, at the Clinton Healthcare Foundation um, um, about two or three weeks ago with President Clinton and didn't get into the issue on the cancer side. So because the, of the, the substance of your program, we're going to focus today on the cancer side. And at the end of the day, uh, the take-home message is we need to go from DNA to RNA to protein to peptide to drug. And my job uh, through this talk is not only to describe why that's a reality, that if we don't go there, we'll be missing and spending billions of dollars looking at the wrong targets. So this is the opportunity that I think we need to do. And um, I just came back um, from a trip to Portland last week in which I was asked to speak to 170 oncologists that came from Alaska, Washington, Oregon, Portland, South, uh, Southern California, Northern California, to speak about a concept, this whole concept of genomics and proteomics. And I put up this slide that I had put up at ASCO. Now, ASCO is the American Society of Clinical Oncology, which is the largest body on the planet that actually brings oncologists together in Chicago once a year. And I had a room, not quite as big as this, but half the size of all the pancreas cancer experts in the country, and asked them all, uh, here we have a patient with pancreatic cancer, and unfortunately, as you could see clearly, with metastasis throughout the body, and what treatment would you give this patient? And 99% of them said gemcitabine, which, by the way, was, is the standard of care, and has been the standard of care since 1997 in NCCN guidelines, and asked them all, um, if you were to look at the package insert, what do you think the response rate of gemcitabine would be? And nobody really knew. And if I said I pulled it out, and I said, if I told you it was actually 0%, uh, would you be surprised? And most of them were surprised. Then I said, well, what if you, in fact, gave the patient a protocol and in one month had that? And they said, wow. And I said, well... Actually, that protocol not only exists, but we presented it at this ASCO conference last year, which then really emphasizes the fact that um, it is impossible today for clinical oncologists to keep up with the science of medicine in real time. And it's become very personal to me um, because my cousin uh, called me and she says, I have this, metastatic pancreatic cancer. And this lifespan is two months on average. In the meantime, by 2005, 2006, 2007, we had stumbled on uh, the concept, which I'm not going to go into tonight, of a thing called reactionary angiogenesis and metonomic dosing, meaning the following, that the entire country has been following this dogma of what you call maximum tolerated dose. Maximum tolerated dose means we give you as much dose as we can that doesn't kill you, with hope that these chemical poisons will kill the cancer cell. And what we discovered counterintuitively, as soon as you give a drug to a cancer cell that's reactive to that drug and, in fact, responsive, the first thing the cancer cell does, it spawns micrometastasis, things you can't see, and goes into your lung and liver. And you don't die from the prime, you die from the metastasis. So we conceived then and understood what was going on at the micrometastasis at the protein level and came up with protocols that not only kill the macrometastasis but also kill the micrometastasis. And to this day now, I'm happy to say, 
We've now taken pancreatic cancer, and we now have patients who have metastasis like this, completely free of disease, five years out. Uh, we have now, a, in 50 patients at Los Angeles, a, a, a one-year survival of 84% in metastatic pancreatic cancer. Um, uh, and I'm excited to say, talk about that, but I'm also um, hesitant to talk about that because that needs to not only be validated, but exposed to the entire nation. And the question is why? So why is that happening? What are we doing that's different? Uh, So when my cousin called and she said, okay, I'm gonna get this treatment, and I'm at, she's Canadian, and I'm going to University of Toronto, and this is what they're gonna give me. I said, what they're gonna give you? And I said, well, that's wrong. Let me speak to the doctor, and he says, and, and he said, well, that's what we do here. And I said, okay. And this was 15 months ago. And he basically told us she's got two or three months. And um, so I said, come down to Los Angeles. So today she's now 15 months. And her CA-99 is now dropped by 80%. I had a separate friend. His name is, he's told, has allowed me to use his name because he's gone on some TV show which actually said, says the whole story, David Roy who uh, worked with Ray Chambers, and I had not seen David Roy for 20 years. And David Roy uh, had gone to see the Sinai um, and has metastatic pancreatic cancer. And the doctor at Cedar Sinai said, you have two months, and here's Jim Cytobine. And he happened to have read an article about me and found me, and he's now 14 months. So I think this issue of knowledge um, um, of what I call the lemming effect in dogma, is such a perverse, uh, pervasive issue that unless you prove something and completely show it in large scale, it's going to be hard for it to be adopted. So as um, um, Ivor said, I was fortunate enough uh, when we went from the islet cell transplant, and by the way, with the islet cell transplant is how I actually invented Abraxane, because we were building stem cells. And I was part of the space shuttle program. And it got funded by NIST and NASA. So I was a strange bird that was a professor of surgery doing whole organ pancreas transplants, trying to work on encapsulation systems, working with venture capitalists, and funded by NASA and NIST. Um, But cut a long story short, what I discovered is as these stem cells were proliferating, they um, died. And NASA happened to be sending albumin up in the space shuttle. And albumin is a human protein in all of us. It dawned on me every time you lose, with whatever cancer you may have, you lose weight. And it dawned on me then that maybe the albumin that is feeding all normal cells is what's feeding all cancers. That's why we're having cachexia. So therefore, if you could take albumin and make a nanoparticle of albumin and trick the cancer to feed on itself and put it inside a drug, you could treat all cancers. So I presented this to the NCI in 1991, 1992, same time um, I was talking about and actually developed the first nanoparticle and gave it to them, and they gave it to Bristol-Myers and said they tested all the animals. This is incredible, but exactly can never be manufactured. Please go away. Um, and I couldn't explain this to anybody because here I am, a pancreas transplant surgeon at UCLA, uh, working on encapsulated islet cell transplants, part of NASA, developed a nanoparticle, trying to say we have a drug that can treat all cancers. So I can <laughs> have empathy that when you speak in that form, and shorthanded, it sounds too incredible. To cut a long story short, I left the university to build a nanoparticle 
and it's now approved for breast cancer, metastatic breast cancer, double the response rate. It's now approved for lung cancer, squamous cell cancer. It's now approved for metastatic pancreatic cancer. So I say that only to, 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 to that the, the realization came to me that I now need to go to this next stage because the next stage was by the year 2000, the human genome was being developed. And President Clinton had funded the Human Genome Project and Craig Venter, as some of you may know, and uh, Francis Collins made this uh, announcement in 2000, and you could see it on the YouTube. And Francis Collins said, "By in our lifetime, the 2,000 Americans a day who die from cancer will now um, be uh, gone in our lifetime." Um, and this is where I began to get concerned because the entire field of genomics was built on the concept of hereditary diseases meaning if you look at cystic fibrosis, muscle dystrophy, etc., uh, if you inherit the disease. So therefore, if you make the concept of you could identify the genetic code and the abnormality, you could actually cure that disease with gene therapy. And so therefore, most of you know that most of this decade was spent on gene therapy. Except there's a fatal flaw in that logic, because you don't inherit cancer, you actually get it meaning that you inherit a risk, but you do not uh, get cancer by inheritance. You actually get it by being exposed to something in which that risk translates into the disease downstream, which means it's not the gene that's important. It's what's downstream that's important, meaning it's the protein. So if we're going to spend the next decade looking at genomics, we're looking at the wrong place. Uh, and we'll spend, again, a whole area of dogma. So the first thing I had to do, however, was try and explain that world of DNA. So here's DNA, and uh, this is where the challenge for me to do this in half an hour and speak about the whole concept of genomics and proteomics. Uh, But here's DNA inside the nucleus. Now, to give you some insight what that is, we we have three billion alphabet letters called base pairs that make up the DNA inside this nucleus. Those three billion translate into 22,000 genes that make proteins. Now, if it was just the genes, then that would be fine. But in a worm, there's 22,000 genes, which means you and I (laughs) and a worm have the same genetic code, so therefore there has to be something more complex in us than in a worm and the complexity lies downstream in the protein pathways that the DNA actually uh, encode. So uh, the country today is still focused on DNA. There's 22,000 genes, and there's a company out there that's actually measuring one gene, called a BRCA1, one gene, which gives risk, and yet decisions are being made, including bilateral mastectomies, based on one single gene. There's companies now looking at 256 genes and saying that is important, um, but that's a priori making a decision these 256 genes out of 22,000 genes are important. So the first step is we need to look at 22,000 genes. That's just in its own right a question that needs to be addressed called whole genome sequencing or next generation sequencing. What's exciting now is that we were able to do next generation whole genome sequencing for less than $1,000. But here's the problem. Um, In order to do that, the analysis takes 11 weeks. 
but you're going to see the patient every two weeks, and you need to make the decision before you start the treatment. If the analysis takes 11 weeks, there's a sort of mathematical mismatch, um, which means you need to sort of figure out a different way. Then, if you do the math, there's 2.5, maybe 2 million new diagnoses a year and maybe 13 million survivors, which means we need to do about 10,000 patients a day of just whole genome sequence analysis. Then you do that math. Um, in order to transmit the amount of data of 10,000 patients a day is equivalent to 30 times the download of Facebook per day or eight times the entire library of Netflix per day. So no fiber infrastructure existed for that, which meant the country needed to actually prepare for that. And that's one of the things we've done without going into detail. We've actually now built and supported fiber infrastructure across the world to actually move 10,000 genomes a day. So without much ado, we quietly went and did that and took um, 6,000 cancer genome analysis, 3,022 patients, and streamed it in 69 hours, the largest genomic library in the world, and were able to do the complete analysis of a human being in 42 seconds. Uh, and we announced that last year. But what was exciting is we were able to take every cancer type from the Cancer Genome Atlas, no matter what it was, anatomically, and said we need to now forget about the anatomical uh, location and convert all of this into its molecular profile. And all of a sudden, when you turn this on its head, a BRAF, for example, crosses all anatomical types. So all of a sudden, this idea of us looking at cancer, a breast cancer specialist, a lung cancer specialist, is actually nonsense. You need to find a BRAF. Uh, specialists, so to speak. Uh, but the problem is we, now we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of, 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 of genes. What was exciting is when we did it that way, we found that there were drugs that are fully approved in cancer for these patients. So now you could have an ovarian cancer patient that could be a BRAF, but the drug is approved for breast cancer or melanoma. You don't care as long as this patient has this abnormality. What was even more exciting is when we looked at these patients, there were drugs approved that were for other diseases, cardiac diseases, so the non-cancer indications. So literally, there are drugs available out there, already FDA approved, for, if you actually looked at these mutations independent of an anatomical tumor type, which then says I needed this challenge to explain to the world we need to do what we call whole genome sequencing, 22,000 genes, not 256, not one. And we need to analyze this in a supercomputer way so that you can treat the patient before treatment begins. Which then says, okay, well, that's DNA. Except that this is a problem. Those genes that are abnormal don't, norm, don't necessarily affect the protein pathways downstream, meaning that this DNA normal or abnormal, talks to a thing called RNA on the surface of the nucleus, which is then responsible for making these protein pathways, which is then on the responsible for creating this receptor, which is either normal or abnormal. Which means then, even after we've gone through this 22,000 DNA issue, here, for example, is gastric cancer, what we're actually targeting 
is, in drug terms, are the proteins. Now, this is when it gets scary, and this is from the Time magazine, and they said it just beautifully. Mapping the human genome helps science determine risk factors. Searching for proteins telling us about the state of a disease in patients now. Meaning that the gene, or genomics, tells you where you've been, and maybe where you're going to be, but doesn't tell you where you are. Proteins tells you where you are in terms of the state of your disease. But guess what? Here's DNA, 22,000, 3 billion. Now, those who are mathematically inclined, just think of this computation problem. Times 200,000 RNA times 2 million so proteins times 10,000 networks to find the one. So I say, think of this movie, The Matrix, are you the one? And that's the challenge. You need to go through 22,000 genes, 3 billion base pairs, 200,000 RNA, 2 million proteins, 10,000 networks to find the one. And that is what excited me in 2005, that we needed to build a computational infrastructure, a fiber infrastructure, and even a wireless infrastructure, even next-generation chips systems, uh, next-generation computing devices at the tablet form so that a doctor who's impossible, completely impossible to know this in real time, can have this information at the fingertips, or what I call a supercomputer in the palm of your hands, so that we can have this information. Well, uh, we were crazy, and Nantworks was formed. I had the luxury of having sold the two companies and going underground, um, <laughs> and uh, created this infrastructure, and it won the Nature Method of the Year 2012, where here was another myth. The other myth was, how would we interrogate these proteins? Because it's impossible to look at that. Yet, when you have a biopsy, it's thrown into what we call formalin-fixed sections, which means it's preserved forever. So everybody has a formalin-fixed section, which is the slide. And the myth was, when you fix it in formalin, you destroy the protein. And there was another dogma. In fact, that wasn't the case. So we funded this idea that if we could take this as a cancer and laser dissect from the tissue, the cancer and the normal tissue, right next to it, for the first time you can measure both the gene and the protein in real time from a patient. And do both what we call the genomic analysis and it won the Nature Method of the year 2012. Which then said, we could now take paraffin sections, tissue, laser dissect, do what we call a liquid biopsy, do the genomic profile of the entire 22,000 genes, the proteomic profile, and in real time know what's driving that tumor and that cell at the proteomic level and decide what drug to give. So this will be the only molecular diagnostic tool, and now we form this company called Nantomics, which will really be able to take from nucleotide to peptide for the same tissue. And I have the privilege this evening to meet the parents um, of this patient that, um, and and I'm going to take you through, it's a complicated slide, but I want to take you through, because I believed um, um, 
fate had it that Ivor and I were met in 1992, and I announced in a press release that we'd done the whole genome sequencing, and Ivor gave me a call about uh, a patient who I knew very little about, other than that the patient, uh, a young lady, uh, who had failed six courses of chemotherapy and uh, was basically on her deathbed, and would I do something to help her by doing the whole genome sequencing? I said, Ivor, it would be a pleasure. We want to do this immediately. Send us the tissue. He did the whole genome sequencing, and we took the tissue. So let me tell you what we did. Here's we did the whole genome sequencing. That means we went through 22,000 genes and found in her chromosome 17, one of her genes, that the human papilloma virus had inserted itself into the genomic cycle of her life and created a mutation in that gene. And we were able to predict then, based on that mutation, that a protein called HER2 would be overexpressed. We took her tissue, laser dissected it, and it found indeed she had 11,000 atomola of HER2 overexpressed. We discovered, in fact, she had cervical cancer. So this was the first scientific proof that human papillovirus, one of the methods of action is inserting itself into the human genome, causing an amplification of this gene, causing downstream the production of this protein, and this excess protein was actually driving her cancer. So here is a patient with cervical cancer that could be treated with a breast cancer drug. We called Ivor, and immediately she was put on this breast cancer drug called Herceptin, I think the doctor had trouble convincing an insurance company, and apparently they had to say she had breast cancer in order to get it proved. Um, she got the drug, and the fantastic thing for me, uh, I was just told by the parents she was given an extra year, and she went on a cruise, stabilized the disease. So in my mind, this is the first demonstration ever in history of Genomics, whole tumor genomics, predictive proteomics, targeted proteomics, driving what we call a molecular-driven clinical decision at the protein level. So I think this is not just the future. This is cancer care of today and should be cancer care of today. Um, let me go back. What is also exciting, and I don't, and we can maybe have this in the conversation, now for the first time, we can measure the protein that's active or inactive in your cancer cell, which means for the first time we can take these chemical poisons, whether it be, cyclos uh, whether it be um, cisplatin, taxol, etoposide, poisons that we've been using for 50 years, and think about them as antibiotics. Let me explain that to you. If I were to say you had a penicillin-resistant staphylococcus, you would not be getting penicillin. We could measure it was resistant the staph to penicillin, so we don't give you penicillin. We can now, for the first time, measure a protein that, for example, would create resistance to cisplatin. So we wouldn't give you cisplatin. So for the first time now, there's tons of proteins we are identifying, and I just put that abstract in last night to ASCO, that can actually tell a doctor what drug to give and what drug not to give, these old chemical poisons. So to me, that in its own right is very exciting because we can take old chemotherapy and make a targeted therapy. And then on top of that, 
By doing this, we can buy time, just like we're buying time in these patients with pancreatic cancer, and completely now monitor what we want to do to outsmart these cancer changes that's happening in real time. But how would we do that? Well, we can go from liquid biopsy from a tissue, but imagine, however, that the cancer cell actually spills these circulating tumor cells into the blood. But that's one in a billion cells. And how would you find that circulating tumor cell? So uh, Iva has a company, and there are other companies going after ways of extracting circulating tumor cells. It turns out we're back to physics. Circulating tumor cells have a different morphology, different drag, different speed, and the, and the wonders of a thing called microfluidics allows us now to extract circulating tumor cells from the blood in real time without putting any markers on them and being able to do this analysis, which means we could capture the circulating tumor cell. And here's a methodology of doing exactly that. This is now received CE mark. Now here's one in a billion cells that can go through the complete analysis, which means we could treat cancer like diabetes, where we could now monitor the circulating tumor cells for all cancer survivors, for patients in metastasis, and take it to the next stage. So this is my uh, job to go from DNA to RNA to protein to peptide to drug um, and try to explain that to the world. And it's such an exciting time to be this place in time um, that we have launched this. So in 2012, I created what we call the Cancer Knowledge Action Network. It's a 501c3 public charity. I made this a public charity, not a private foundation, a public charity in which we would interconnect the United States. And we've, I just submitted this abstract last night, so no, not the oncologist of the world does not know. I had a long conversation with the president of ASCO today and Cliff Huddis over the weekend to say this is coming. Uh, we've done 6,000 genomes, 3,000 patients in 2012. In 2013, we did 687 whole genomes, 17,000 exomes. We're basically doing 1,000 genomes a month. So my job now is to figure out how we could launch this, and we're launching what we call Genomics America. I announced this with President Clinton at the Clinton Foundation. Um, in England, uh, I was at 10 Downing Street about uh, two months ago, and um, Prime Minister Cameron NHS has launched Genomics England, where they're putting up 100 million pounds to do 100,000 um, 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 patients with cancer. We are the bioinformatic backbone of that. Uh, I was just with President Ma um, last week from Taiwan, and they want to create genomics Taiwan, and then we'll do genomics China and genomics Africa. I think there's an opportunity to do something like this where it's sharing of information for a common cause. Um, and uh, the opportunity for us to do this and launch this is so exciting, and this is the path that we are now on. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. That was really a wonderful talk, and I have to say, I think resonates extremely well uh, with the audience and with us about where we want to see everything going. Um, and I, I want to say that the pancreatic cancer example is a great example. Um, you mentioned some cytobine, and the increase in survival from that drug is six weeks. And uh, the other, another FDA-approved drug, uh, Tarceva, has an increase in survival of 11 days. 
ways. So uh, you're smiling, I know you know that. So that illustrates the problem. Um, but what I wanted to ask you about is, um, I mentioned uh, in the brief time we had to talk before um, this lecture uh, that we had started matching patients with drugs based on genomics initially at MD Anderson and now at uh, Moore's Cancer Center. And um, we, um, from doing this in the patient space, we have found that there are two major hurdles that we are encountering. And I'm wondering if I could ask your thoughts about them. The first hurdle is regulatory. And the second hurdle is actually getting the drugs for patients. So um, with regulatory, we're finding that these tests are coming under more and more regulatory scrutiny. And therefore, it is difficult to incorporate them into clinical trials or clinical use. And I'm wondering if you've encountered that and what your thoughts are. Right. So... In fact, I'm addressing that quite directly as we speak. Let's talk about um, the, the, the regulatory and the clinical issues. I think the reason why I fear that by starting a program that is incomplete with what I call incomplete information. So where are the incomplete pieces of information? The piece of incomplete information is the phenotypic data, meaning the electronic medical record data. In order for you to really have a trial that you can monitor output and outcome in real time all the time, you need to have connectivity not just of the genomic data, but actually of the x-rays, the CAT scans, the white count, the temperature, the heart rate, I, everything about that patient in real time all the time. So we have created this, what we call this clinical operating system. And right now, we've actually inserted this at U.S. Oncology, and we actually have integrated 3.3 million cancer lives for the last three years, we know exactly what drug they're on, when they're on, where they're on, what the outcome is. So we've addressed then this idea of interconnectivity and also using wireless technology at home in the clinic. And this is what I call this integrated clinical operating system, which I announced last two weeks ago with President Clinton. The next question, however, is when I talk about incomplete information, uh, we're looking before at genomic data. The problem is the only genomic data people are doing, with, even if they're doing exomes, you don't know whether that mutated gene is actually what we call expressing. Is it actually doing something downstream? Because 50% of those mutated genes actually do nothing. They just sit there. And you make an assumption that that mutation means you give a drug. So, so then that's another piece of incomplete information. So we've exp- fixed that now by this talk with this proteomics going downstream. So if you then combine proteomics, all of the genomics, proteomics, and the entire phenotypic data on a continuum on a longitudinal way and tie that to a mobile device that is a software as a service so that a practicing doctor can have all this information in real time all the time. We've now deployed that software as a service and 8,000 oncologists in the United States today are using it. And we're about to announce this at ASCO that we will then create this Institute of Molecular Medicine across the country which will share this data. And I'm meeting with the FDA and Margaret Hamburg and the teams where um, the, this whole concept now of doing clinical trials based on the proteomic and genomic profile independent of the anatomical type is going to happen. I'm incredibly encouraged by the NHS. Um, in London, believe it or not, there's an entire city 
where the entire city is the clinical trial. Every human being in that city that may or may not have lung cancer of different stages will be popped into a trial. At University of Chicago, we'll be launching a trial called Pangea for gastric cancer. And Pangea was named because the entire world 250 million years ago was one continent and as we've broken up. Um, so uh, I'm very encouraged that not only uh, we can get over the regulatory. Now, with regard to the pharmaceutical side, look, I was on the pharmaceutical side and I spent ages trying to convince the CEOs of all the major pharmaceutical companies that you've got to change your ways. We can't go after those blockbusters where... 20% works and 80% doesn't, and this you're looking at addressable market. You need to look at a truly personalized medicine. And if you get 100% or 80% response in 10,000 patients and you just do it over and over and over again, you're actually going to create not only organic value, but it's a completely different way of thinking. I'm excited to say that, in fact, that's the process that's now going on. So Bob Hugan is the CEO now of the Pharma, um, and he's at Celgene. Um, I sold my company to Celgene. I have a little bit of um, partnership from Celgene. They've now given me back the nanoparticle technology, and we're going to launch this with Celgene, where every clinical trial uh, will be part of a genomic proteomic profile, so the phase one, phase two drugs. I'm having meetings with Glaxo, Novartis, etc. Um, I believe that every human being walking around is a clinical trial to himself, actually. And, and of one. N of 1, the power of N, equal, N of 1, but the power of N equals all, because that information actually can inform the entire world. So we need to have what I call a continuous learning system. And the power of supercomputing, cloud computing, mobile technology um, uh, is where this is, is at. And you combine that with domain expertise as well as the pharmaceutical industry. I think we're on a path now. You mentioned um, that uh, cancer, you implied that cancer will need to be reclassified on this basis, that the classification, uh, breast cancer or lung cancer, is obviously not ag- adequate. And you gave the example of a patient with cervical cancer that had an abnormality that was typically breast cancer. And of course, that's what we're going to find all the time. Um, so how do you see solving the problem of getting that breast cancer drug to the cervical cancer patient? Because that's huge. Uh, we may know what we want to give the patient, but we can't get the drug to the patient because it costs a fortune. Right. So now you're on to the payment system. So exactly why I say you look at healthcare, and I was just saying there's three buckets. This is knowledge bucket, this is delivery bucket, and this is payment bucket. And the first thing was this knowledge bucket. And look, I invented a Braxane in 1991 and got approved in 2005, in pancreatic in 2013. That is completely unacceptable in the world of genomics and proteomics. You've got two months to live, you can't wait 17 years. So we need to bring the knowledge bucket into the delivery bucket. Then you have this delivery bucket is completely disaggregated, disorganized, um, where there's actually no communication. So we need to create this clinical operating system, which you've now done. So now we integrate care across a continuum. Now you're left finding with the payment bucket. And that's why I created the CEO Council for Health and Innovation with Mutar Kent, Lowell McAdam, Brian Monaghan, the Fortune 50 companies that are self-insured, because we're not going to get Medicare, Medi-Cal to move on this. So we need to now create a complete change of systems where there's no ICD-9 code, as I say, for health, where the bonus is to keep the patient healthy and out of the hospital. And we don't care what you do as long as you keep the patient healthy and measure the outcomes. 
So I said to President Clinton, the largest barrier now to change is a change in the payment system where we need to incentivize and align incentives so that the only interest to be considered is that of the patient. By the way, that's a quote by Mayo almost 100 years ago. And if we can then create a payment system where you, you, you as a provider, are rewarded for the health of the patient, not the sickness or the procedure you do or the drug you give, but the health of the patient, and we kept a bundled payment. So we're spending, what, two, three, four trillion dollars soon. It's not the amount of money we're spending, it's how we're spending it. We, we're spending more money than any other country on the planet with worse outcomes. Um, so it's, it's, it's not the cost. And that's what I, I worry about in terms of the Affordable Care Act, because it's really insurance reform, and the people that's going to get hurt are the providers. And if I were to tell you that in this private exchange, to see a new patient and to examine a patient, you're going to be paid $14 an hour. I mean, we we'll work at McDonald's. Exactly. <laughs> They're raising the minimum. And, and so it's not, it's, it's, it's the issue of really um, re-jiggering um, outcomes-based, patient-centered care based on payment. So you need to look at healthcare as a system. There's this knowledge bucket, delivery bucket, and payment bucket, and all needs to be integrated in terms of the issues uh, simultaneously, and that's what we're trying to address. So another sort of related question that I often get asked, but I would like um, your uh, opinion here, is if patients are N of 1, um, will uh, pharmaceutical companies want to develop drugs? And how will that uh, change the drug development schema? Well, it's like asking Blockbuster if they want to be Netflix. (laughs) (laughs) And I think they have to. Um, I think the entire industry, there's a lot of industries that are going to change, actually. Um, um, And what I'm encouraged by, and it's not... um, end of one, actually. It's, you know, um, really looking at a, all the BRAF patients. So it's across the, the spectrum. Um, I, as I said, I'm, I'm encouraged because I think companies like Celgene and Glaxo um, are absolutely moving down that path. Um, do you think, um, this, uh, this is another question that um, I'm often asked, and I think it's very relevant. Um, uh, some people feel that this is actually going to increase the cost of health care because of all the testing that is done. And what is your feeling there? I, I think quite the opposite, actually. I mean, imagine getting a chemotherapeutic agent for which you a priori knew you didn't know you didn't do the test is going to be toxic and the patient gets um, congestive heart failure, cardiac failure, goes in or gets an infection, which often happens, goes in. Um, so I think the costs are going to be actually counterintuitively reduced uh, because you get better outcomes. I, I, I totally agree with you, but I have to say that there's a lot of people um, that uh, don't agree. Um, one, uh, future, one futuristic thing um, I wonder if you've thought about um, uh, we're now talking about 3D printing. And is there a time where we're going to be able to predict through 3D imaging or um, some integrated supercomputer system what kind of drug will work for a patient and produce that drug? Uh, so, And that's not only completely on the cards, it's actually happening. 
because you now have a, what we call a protein-protein interaction, um, and you, because of proteomics. And there's two drugs, two, two, two proteins that's been the bugbear forever for everybody, drug protein called P53, which, and the other one called KRAS. These are like ma ma master switches inside your body that actually cause cancer. And it's eluded forever because you could never get down to the protein level. And when, by getting down to the protein level, you need to look at the dynamic docking of that. So now with the power of computing, we can actually look at docking in real time. And I'm happy to say, we just announced it with Celgene, we've identified a P53 drug and we've identified a KRAS drug now through protein-protein docking. So that is not only very real, it's, um, again, it's again it's the power of Moore's law now that we actually can take uh, uh, GPU clouds, for example, and, and actually do things that have never been done before. But if it takes, on average, 12 to 14 years to get that drug to approval, are we going to be able to shorten that? And what if we can produce drugs? I mean, I think this is really conceivable. It sounds like science fiction. But what if we really can produce drugs quickly, almost instantly? Is that, I, I That's actually happening. So I'm now seeing labs that are actually doing that. And, you know, people like City of Hope, for example, are now building GMP labs inside the hospitals. Um, Interestingly enough, I gave a keynote speech to the NIH, in which Harold Varmus was the head of NIH at that point in 1995. And I still have the text of this speech where I said, the future is the pharmaceutical houses, the future is actually the hospitals, where you integrate biologists, clinicians, um, and manufacturers all at the point of care. And that's exactly what's happening now. So uh, the manufacture of these raw materials, especially protein-protein uh, drugs which are uh, synthetically easily manufactured, um, is not only very real. I'll share with you, and I'll do some breaking news here with you, um, and the patent just got issued yesterday. Uh, we had developed a protein-protein interaction for the influenza A virus, uh, H1N1, because one of the things I've been looking at from what I could do with my time, is what's going to wipe us out as a human race. And clearly a pandemic will. And so one of the concerns was, was every time we have a, a bird flu, an avian flu, and people look at the coat, what if we not look at the core? And so we looked at the core and at the RNA virus, and now we've been able to identify not only a protein-protein molecules, we've now been able to wipe out all four or five strains of H, uh, influenza A and influenza B from the same molecule. So I think this is very exciting because this is very real, um, this, this opportunity to develop this technology. Uh, we know that cancer is complicated, and it's unlikely that single drugs will be curative in many patients. So we need to give combinations. But then we have, again, the conundrum that um, two drug combinations, if there's 300 dr cancer drugs, there's 45,000, and three drug combinations, there's almost 4.5 million. And the way we've done clinical trials, we have to test each one of them and test their toxicity. Um, are we going to figure our way around that? I think that was exactly the promise of what we just presented. So first of all, let me just make a, I think, a complete uh, in my mind, statement, there is no one single magic bullet. You absolutely have to have combination therapies. The only thing constant about a cancer cell is its ability to morph and change. I've actually termed this quantum physics, right? Quantum biophysics. And the thing called what I believe quantum oncotherapeutics, I've actually termed this thing, this crazy term, 
because we as physicians have been looking at cancer in a linear fashion. Cancer is not linear. You can't give a drug, stop, watch, stop, watch, stop, watch. You actually have to anticipate the quantum change that's happening in advance. And the way you anticipate the quantum change in advance is you need to look at the proteomic level. So if we can look at the proteomic level, not at the genomic level, at the proteomic level of what's driving that cancer cell, and then give the drug or two or three drugs, and anticipate when you give these three drugs, it'll actually release its release mechanism, which you actually have predicted, and then measure <coughs> through the circulating tumor cells. You can then give the next recipe or have it even waiting in advance. That is what I say the war against cancer is a war against time. You have to figure out a way where you can outrace the cell until you can truly kill it. And what's exciting now, as I said, we have now patients five years out with metastatic pancreatic cancer. So we're winning the war against time. We've not cured it, but we're getting at least an opportunity to actually chase it, watch it, and get to it. Um, and, and that's what I said. We're on the path. I'm not saying we've cured. We're on the path to the cure. And I think proteomics is going to get us there. The other thing is about this 4,000 different potpourri of drugs. We can now actually a priori predict whether that drug will be responsive or not responsive by its protein signature of the drug. For example, let me give you an example of gemcitabine you mentioned. And I put up this test, by the way, to the audience of these oncologists. Has anybody heard about HENT1? No. HENT1 is a protein that the cancer cell secretes or suppresses that is used to actually absorb gemcitabine. So if there's no HENT1, don't give gemcitabine. If there's HENT1, you give gemcitabine. So the data's just come out now. So we can predict a priori what drug to give based on the proteomic profile. That's why I'm so nervous about this country going down the DNA without ignoring the proteomics. You need to go from DNA to RNA to protein to peptide to drug. And that's crossing scales of enormous complexity. But we've, we've done that and we can do it. So we're going to need to cut off. This has been a wonderful discussion. And uh, let's give you a big hand. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.